Hello, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here again with just the zoo of us. This is your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, I have a new friend who is joining us. This is Carrie Ann McGugan. Say hello to our friends, Carrie Ann. Hi, everyone. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. I am so excited to talk to you. I'm excited about our animal today. But before we get into that, introduce us a little bit to yourself and your work and what you do. Sure. So I am by, I guess, background and training. I'm a primate researcher. So that means that I am trained to study primates in the wild. So you might be wondering how I came to kind of get to that space because it's a bit unusual. But um, I actually started off as an English major when I took my undergraduate degree. Um, And then I ended up taking an optional course that was called Introduction to Biological Anthropology. And I had a really, really engaging uh, course instructor who actually worked as the head of conservation at the Calgary Zoo in Alberta, Canada, where I'm from. Um, And so he was so um, inspiring. Like he showed a a lot of videos and um, a lot of, gave us a lot of really cool insights about his work and his background in conservation. Um, and his travels. And so I ended up switching from English into anthropology. And then I took my Bachelor of Science and then my master's degree, where I ended up going to Belize to study wild howler monkeys for a few months because there was a big devastating hurricane there. So I studied the impact of that hurricane on that population. And then I ended up doing my PhD on uh, on lemurs. So I switched species. <laughs> um, And uh, I ended up going to the University of Toronto to study lemurs in the wild in Madagascar. Um, And so I spent 14 months living in Madagascar studying uh, cockerel strafakas in the wild. And, uh, you know, I got to basically chase lemurs through the forest (laughs) all day, every day for like 14 hours a day. That sounds awesome, but so tiring. <laughs> yeah, it was exhausting, so I'll probably get to this later. But yeah, they were well-equipped to uh, to move through the forest, and I was not as equipped <laughs> to, to <laughs> chase after them as quickly as I needed to. But it was a lot of fun. I spent, you know, days with them and, you know, had a lot of lemur picnics and things like that um, along the way. What is a lemur picnic? Ah, okay. So... Yeah. <laughs> So because I was spending the whole day out with the lemurs, um, that meant that, you know, I was I would get up at five in the morning, find the group, and then uh, I would stay with them the whole day, kind of tracking where they went and what they ate and how they moved and what they did. But that meant I was out there for lunch. So I would always bring, you know, some, some lunch with me. And uh, so like I, that would be like toast or like cheese. Um, and just little bits of, of, of things like that. And a few times, there was a, one day in particular where it, was, where it was really hot and the lemurs would rest during the hot periods of the day. So they actually started coming lower and lower to the ground to get more shade area. And so they moved low and then they actually moved directly onto the ground. And it was right about my lunchtime. So I pulled out my snacks and, you know, there you have it. It was a lemur picnic. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds so cute. How close were they comfortable getting to you? Um, By the end, pretty comfortable. So part of being a lemur researcher involves habituating the primates. And so that meant the first few weeks to month of the field work involves kind of just spending the time with them just so they get used to 
um, human presence because some groups were. Um, it was actually a tourist site where I worked, so they were pretty used to humans, but some groups weren't as used to humans kind of following them around all day. So yeah, you'd spend some time with them just to get them used to your presence. So by that by that time, I had that lemur picnic. They they didn't care that I was there at all. Um, so they were, you know, I would say maybe two meters or so away from from me. So yeah, and right on the ground. So really, really close. Oh my gosh, I would have been losing it. Were you losing it? <laughs> yeah, I, it was pretty like my heart was racing. And yeah, like that's one of the more memorable moments that I had with the lemurs when I was there for that 14 months of that day in particular. Like that that's one that I always talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I could see why. So, you know, we're talking about lemurs, which are like primates that live in Madagascar. And then you mentioned that we're talking about sifakas today. So is there a difference? between lemurs and sifakas? Like, what's that term about? Ah, so a shifaka is a type of lemur. So the species that I studied was called cockerels shifakas. Um, and they get that name based on the sound that they make. Is they kind of make this almost like a sneezing sound. I can't even begin to try to try to emulate it, but it's sort of <laughs> like shifaka is like what the, the sound that they kind of make. It sort of sounds like a little bit of a sneeze. Yeah, so they're a type of lemur. There's 111 different species and subspecies of lemur. And so that's one type. <laughs> okay. Are all lemurs in Madagascar or are there lemurs elsewhere? No. So that's what makes lemurs so special is that they're only found in Madagascar and nowhere else on the planet. So we call that, like in the scientific community, the name for that is endemic. And so that is, yeah, that means they're only found there and nowhere else. And there's 111 of them on this. Is is Madagascar called an island? I know they're really big. Do you still call it an island at that size? Yep. So it's actually the fourth largest island in the world after Greenland, New Guinea, and uh, and Borneo. So it's, yeah, it's a big island. It's about the size of Texas um, in terms of size. So it's quite big, which means there's a lot of different habitat types. Um, and that's why there's so many different species of lemur, because they're all like adapted to diff- living in different areas on that island. Okay, okay. The, I'm going to take your cue and say shifaka instead of sifaka, <laughs> like I have been. But so with these shifakas, these are the ones that are probably the most familiar to people listening, because we've seen them on TV, yes? <laughs> yeah, so the species that I studied, cockerel shifaka, is the bumafu. So I don't know if that's the what you're referring to, but that's probably the most famous children's television show because they live also in the Duke Lemur Center and that's where they filmed a lot of the the animals in Zabumafu and obviously Zabumafu was a a puppet as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah they had like it was really interesting they would like transition between having like the puppet that was talking and then they would switch over to like footage of an actual real life like (laughs) Shafaka that was moving around but so yeah when I when I see one I it's very instantly recognizable as like that's Sabumafu which is really exciting to me because (laughs) that show was out right at the time when I was in the perfect age group for it I was like five six years old so like it it definitely I see him I just get this warm fuzzy feeling I'm like I learned so much from you (laughs) I know I'm hoping they bring something back similar to that because there's like I think yeah you're the prime demographic for Zabumafu and now it's the, the kids don't know it as much so I'd like to re like bring that back like maybe we can get some retro action going or hopefully they'll make another show <laughs> yeah they're not monkeys right they resemble monkeys but they're not right right so they're their own group um, which we call the structurines 
monkeys are different. So there's different characteristics that sort of distinguish lemurs from monkeys. There's no monkeys found in Madagascar, for example, um, and then physical traits as well. So like monkeys have what, these prehensile tails, some of them. Um, so that means they have tails that can grasp onto objects, almost like another limb. Um, but none of the lemurs have that. They just um, have kind of a, a run-of-the-mill tail, I suppose. But <laughs> they're still pretty cool. But it's still long, right? It's like the long, bushy tail. That's what I think of. I think of like the fluffy like tail with the rings on it. Yeah, so that's a ring-tailed lemur. Yeah, they have the, the fluffy like um, ringed tail. And then the shafakas, have, they have plain white uh, or depending on the different colorations. Because there's more than one type of shafaka in Madagascar. Um, but yeah, so the tail and then also differences in their teeth and like the way that their skull is, is shaped and things like that um, distinguishes them from the monkeys. I like them so much. We have them at our zoo and it's always really fun because like when you go up to their exhibit, it's at ground level and there's just like glass between you and the lemurs and yep. they are so curious like they'll come right up to the glass where you are and they're like looking back at you and they're curious about you too so like they'll come right up and look like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> were they like that with you in the wild oh yeah 100% and I like you're doing the little <laughs> head motion and that's exactly what they did so they actually would cock their head almost like um, a dog waiting for a treat like they'll just give a little like cock of the head because yeah there'd be they'd be very curious in particular because at the site where I worked there was actually eight different species of lemur so it wasn't just the shafakas but there was also the brown lemur and the brown lemurs were especially curious they would often wake us up because they would be bouncing around like the trees above our tent and making these sounds almost like grunting sounds that sounds like almost like a group of pigs <laughs> and then we'd end up <laughs> and there would they would be up in the in the trees and they'd give us the little head tilt to when we uh when we emerged from our tent just uh curious so so now that we have a good overview of what we're talking about today we're talking about these shifakas let's get into our ratings a little bit for these animals which is our thing that we do if this is your first time listening to this particular podcast we review our animals and we rate them out of 10 and our first category is effectiveness, which for us is physical adaptations, um, things that are built into the animal's body, things that are like physiological that let the animal do a good job of the things it's trying to do, whether that is evading predators, defending themselves, catching prey, like whatever it is that they're trying to do, things about their body that make them good at doing that. What would you give Cockerel Shifaka for effectiveness? Oh, okay. So I think I would give it a nine. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good score. Yeah. And I'll tell you why I gave the, I knocked off a point um, in a minute, but um, yeah, I can give you a little context as to why I think they're so effective. <laughs> so the first thing that I think is the most effective about their adaptation, their physical adaptations is their um, locomotion style. So they actually engage in what we call vertical clinging and leaping. And that basically involves, they kind of hug onto a vertical substrate, like a tree trunk, and then they are able to then propel themselves through the air, kind of do a 180 flip through the air, and then grab onto the next vertical substrate. And the reason why they can do that is they have these really um, long hind limbs, and they're actually really, really well adapted to kind of spring themselves and propel themselves off into the air like that. And so they can move in one leap, they can take about, um, you know, a 10 meter uh, leap, um, just in one of their kind of steps through the forest. And they've been described as um, 
taking these big ballet leaps through the the top of the canopy and they move silently like it's it's really fascinating to watch because they'll jump and then they'll just like do another jump and like they're off like way off in the distance um in just a few steps (laughs) I'm seeing why it was so hard for you to chase after them (laughs) yeah well that's the problem right is they would move so quickly and seamlessly through the air that a few steps for them was you know way off in the distance and I would have to follow them along the ground and there's all these like bushes and like vines and lianas that I'm trying to charge through there's spiky things that I'm trying to avoid and step over and uh, yeah, so it was uh, it wasn't easy, but I did learn at the end of my research that I figured out where they were going. And so because I knew what trees were fruiting and what they wanted to eat. And so if I saw them go in a particular direction, I would deke out into the trail and just take a shortcut along a trail <laughs> them at the tree. That is working smarter, not harder. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I did that at the end. But yeah, they were just so well adapted. The other thing that they have <clears throat> are these finger pads. So when they would actually jump through the forest and land, those pads would actually help them stick on to the onto the, the branches as well. So that also contributed to their ability to move in that way and to move so effectively through the trees. Wow. Is it is it like a textured pad or like what what is it about the pad that lets it like grab on? Yeah, it's sort of it's just like a like I guess like a pad on the top of their their fingertips that gives them a little bit more traction, I guess. Yeah, so it's got a bit more um I don't know, cushion and then yeah, it makes it easier for them to move through the trees. That's really cool. Yeah, but the, okay, so then here's the reason why I took off a point because the problem is so they're they're seamlessly moving through the canopy, but when you put them on the ground, it gets gets a little bit more awkward. Mm. <laughs> um, so the cockerel shafaka is actually when they they move on the ground, they're they're so well adapted to living in the trees. They have these like hind limbs that are um, really powerful and they're kind of bow shaped. But when they're on the ground, they can't really they can't move the way that we do. Um, so they actually do this really funny bipedal hop slash shuffle that my partner always describes as like a kangaroo doing kung fu. So (laughs) they're like moving, like hopping and shuffling along the ground. And yeah, it's super, super cool to see, but it's a little bit awkward. So they're not quite adapted to move on the ground. But the problem, you know, I debated whether or not to take a point off because the reason why they have to cross gaps through the forest is that some of the forest has been cut down or there might be gaps because of human um, actions. And so not really their fault that they have to kind of cross those gaps um, and that they do it awkwardly. Also, it looks pretty, pretty cool when you see them do it. (laughs) So other than these human created gaps in the forest, is there any other reason why they would ever need to come down to the ground or would they otherwise just be up in the trees 24 seven? I think they would often, like I said, they came down when they were trying to get some shade when it was hot. So they would do that. They would often come down to the ground. They would actually eat bark as well. Like they'd eat the bark off of trees. So they would come down low to do that. There'd be times that they would just come down um, and do that normally um, as well. I mean, most of the time it was to cross a gap, it, like because of either a trail or there was a clearing in the forest and they were get, trying to get to the other side um, or something like that. Okay, that makes sense. When you mentioned that they eat bark, that made me realize I haven't asked you yet. What do they eat? Are they like, <laughs> are they hunting things or are they like foraging for vegetation? Like what, what does their diet look like? Yeah, so they are uh, vegetarians. They eat leaves and fruit and bark. 
that's their main diet. Yeah. Mostly like it depends on the season. Like when it was wet season, they would really, really go hard on the fruit because fruit is a higher quality food source. So it gives more energy um, and things like that. So that's when they really love to, to eat the fruit. But if there wasn't fruit, they would be okay to eat leaves as well. Does anything hunt them? Like what, what do they have to be worried about? Yeah, so they do have predators. Their main predators are the Fusa. So I don't know if anyone has seen um, that Disney cartoon Madagascar. So that was sort of like the villain in that movie. So it's sort of um, a cat-like creature that uh, that lives on the ground and hunts lemurs. And then the other other thing they have to worry about for the younger lemurs for the, or, and the smaller lemurs are aerial predators. So um, raptors, for example. And then the other main threat is, uh, unfortunately, is humans. Do people hunt them for things? Yeah. So the, the biggest threats to lemurs are habitat loss, hunting, and the pet trade. So people do hunt lemurs mainly for food, mainly a subsistence type of hunting that's problematic. I could see that. When you were describing like how difficult it can be to keep up with them, I'm not thinking this is an animal I would want to have in my house. No, no, that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, they don't make good pets, I would say, um, like most primates, because they're so smart. And yeah, it's, they're not a domesticated animal. So yeah, you wouldn't want them uh, bouncing around your house like that. No. <laughs> no, thank you. So when it comes to these, they've got fusas on the ground, which by the way, I've been pronouncing fossa my whole life. So I apologize retroactively for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so all the O's in Malagasy words are pronounced ooh. So that's the okay. that's the trick. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to remember that. <laughs> so they've got fusas on the ground, raptors in the air. Is it just like evasion that they're dealing with to get away from these predators? Do they have like anything that they can use to get away, like to defend themselves? Or are they just kind of making a run for it? Uh, most of the, I guess, they're, the way that they can evade those predators is through behavioral action. So they actually um, really rely on vocalizations to kind of alert each other to the presence of those predators. So they have this, um, yeah, so that's when you kind of hear the characteristic Shafaka vo- vocalizations. So they'll start doing that and they'll kind of like thrust their head backwards almost towards the sky. Um, and usually that when they do that, there's an aerial predator in the area or some kind of aerial threat that they're worried about. So they will make those noises. And then the other, the rest of the group knows, you know, kind of keep an eye out and they'll move a little bit lower down in the tree oftentimes when they do that as well. Okay. That is a really good transition into our second category, which is ingenuity. This is behavioral adaptations that the animal has. So these are things that it's doing with its body um, to solve problems that it faces in its life. So what would you give this Shifaka for ingenuity? So I would give the Shifakas, I think I would give them an eight or a nine, like again, pretty high because I think like most primates, like they're they're pretty smart and they're pretty well adapted, especially behaviorally, to respond to things that are happening around them. So one example, like we just talked about, is you know predator evasion. So with making that call, but they used calls for other things. Like one of the things that would happen a lot when I was following the group is sometimes the group would actually get split up, so they'd lose a few members of the group. So I'd be following. I'd always stay with the majority. So like I'd be with three of them, but like two of the stragglers just hadn't quite made it to where they were. And what they would do is they would make this like cooing sound, like almost like a whoo. And then oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> I know. 
they would do that, but they would do that because then they would hear each other and find each other. So you just hear this like kind of like cooing coming from like way off in the distance behind you. And then they would rejoin the group. So doing that, I think was, was really smart. And it goes to show to just how social these lemurs are, because, you know, that that was a way to kind of keep together as a group. Is there any sort of structure to their social system? Do they have any sort of like hierarchy? They are um, pretty structured in, in many ways. And my favorite way that they're structured is the fact that they are female dominant. Live for it. <laughs> exactly. So there's a joke that kind of goes around the lemur community, which is so King Julian in, in Madagascar, that cartoon should actually have been Queen Juliet because, uh, you know, all the all the lemurs or many of the lemur uh, species are female dominant. And that is actually a really, I guess, if you're thinking about ingenuity, like that's a really well adapted behavior because females need more resources and more food and energy to support childbirth. And so the fact that they're dominant means that they get more access to food. So that uh, is really beneficial for keeping them healthy and, and you know, keeping them um, well during pregnancy and, and lactation and things like that. Oh, that's so that's so smart. So so speaking of their parental care, what is the dynamic like between like the parents and the baby? They do share um, that burden. So the babies, the infants in the group would often be carried by other individuals who weren't the mother. So just because you saw, you know, a, an infant being carried by an individual didn't mean that was the mother. So um, a lot of the time, even the males would be would carry the infants. So yeah, they definitely shared shared that amongst the group, which is nice. Oh, I love to see egalitarian parenting, yeah. like <laughs> in animals where you don't always see it. Um, I really like to see like dad sticking around and exactly. and dad dad holding the babies, and it's always very sweet to me. Yeah. So when you were like working around them, or even in your work, like outside of wild lemurs and wild shifakas, what is their capacity for like learning new things? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, all of my work was with wild shifakas. So I wasn't directly like doing kind of experimental work or anything where I could test how well they learned. I think a lot of researchers who work out of the Duke Lemur Center do do that sort of thing, which is really cool. But yeah, so I mean, I don't know if I can speak to that necessarily. Like I do know, like, you know, the the infants would watch the parents, um, watch their mothers. And, and it seemed like they were may have been picking up certain life skills that way. I'm almost certain that they were. But yeah, I mean, they didn't they don't other primates are known to kind of use tools or and things like that. And you, there's definitely direct evidence in the wild of, of infants watching the parent and emulating that behavior. Um, but uh, yeah, lemurs aren't necessarily, they don't use tools in the same way that other primates do. I mean, they did learn, it did seem like they had particular routes that they took through the forest. Part of the, my research involved tracking where they went and like and calculating like how big of a home range that they had. So the, how, how big of the area of the forest did they use? And so they they used particular roots um, and it seemed like they kind of bounced from one tree to another in a very purposeful, directed way. Like they they knew where they were headed um, and they knew where certain trees were. Um, so, for example, if there was a tree that was fruiting, they remembered where it was. And so they knew where where to go. So that I think, yeah, that that demonstrates kind of a spatial awareness, a spatial intelligence. 
Oh, yeah. That's like way better. Like, I don't remember how to get to places where I need to go every day. Like, <laughs> I need a GPS so often. So like, they've got that up on me. Yeah. The one the one rub, though, I would say, um, which happens from time to time because of cyclones that would kind of go through the area, certain trees would just get knocked down. And sometimes I, they were almost like too rigid in the route that they would take because they'd go from one tree to the next tree. And then if that tree had been suddenly knocked down and wasn't in their route, they they would still like jump and then they'd leap and it would almost be like they'd go through the air and they wouldn't. Oh, no. They, there was nothing for them to grab onto because that tree had fallen. So a few times they actually fell down to the, <laughs> the ground. They were OK. They would like jump right back up. But uh yeah, so I think maybe they, they need a little bit more flexibility in, the, in their ability to adapt their route. <laughs> that's just that muscle memory that sometimes you just, oh my gosh, that's a really funny mental image to mm-hmm. me. I'm glad they were okay. I would imagine that probably falling is a constant risk for them. Um, yeah. Are they, are they usually okay? Like, Is falling like a major threat to them or are they usually fine? They're usually fine. I've never seen an instance where they weren't fine. There was one memorable instance, too, where um, I was watching a group with a baby, and the group was resting, and the baby um, was kind of bouncing around, as as infants do. So it was sort of like jumping from person from person, from lemur to lemur and branch to branch. And that infant actually fell down to the ground from like a significant height. Um, like it made kind of a thud and that gave me a lot of anxiety. But what happened was the rest of the group descended to the ground and formed this little like lemur circle around the infant and collected the infant. One of them grabbed it and brought it back up to the tree. Um, and a few minutes went by and and then it was uh, it was fine. It was moving around, bouncing around again. But it was interesting because they all kind of went down and circled that lemur probably to protect it from um, potential predators and just to make sure that it was okay. Wow. I love that. It takes a village. (laughs) They're so good. How many of them are typically living together in a group? So in the area where I worked, groups could be as small as two and as big as I think the biggest group I had was eight eight or nine. So they could, it was a pretty, pretty big range of group size. Okay. I'm so pleased with the idea of them all. Like one of them gets hurt and all the other ones are like, Oh, it's okay. We got your back. It's all right. We'll take care of you. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) That is a good transition into our next category. Our last category, (laughs) my favorite category, arguably aesthetics, which is just how nice this animal is to look at. So what do you give the Shafaka for aesthetics? Well, it has to be a 10. How could you not? (laughs) (laughs) They had to have put them on TV for a reason, right? Yeah, I mean, this is an iconic species. And like something that a lot of people like yourself, like think about when they think about lemurs or about Madagascar's is this species and the ring tailed lemur are the two that that are most well known. But yeah, I mean, they have one thing that really struck me when I saw them in the in the wild was just how snowy white they kept their fur. And I could never understand, like, for the longest time, I was like, how do they do that? Like, like how do they keep, like, they're bouncing through the trees, they're, you know, going on the ground. Like, how are they keeping their fur so white? And then I realized, of course, like, they, lemurs, like all lemur species have what's called a tooth comb. So they have this specialized like canine and incisor grouping on the bottom of their their jaw 
that's like actually meant for grooming. And so they would spend hours grooming each other. And that's, that's how they obviously kept their fur so white. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a flex. <laughs> They're like showing off. They're like, look how clean I am. Yes, I have bright white fur. It's I can't think of how bright white fur would help them in like a jungle, right? If you're trying to like camouflage or blend in, the bright white can't be helping, right? <laughs> yeah, it, was, it wasn't good. Yeah, they weren't they weren't good camouflagers, no. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like a hot forest where they work, like having a white fur probably does help with with heat, perhaps. Like that's a, just a guess, but that could be. But yeah, they, I mean, they also had like maroon patches. And this is another thing kind of related to the aesthetics that I really love is they have these like maroon colorations along their arms and their legs that almost looks like they're wearing like an overcoat and trousers. So they're very, they're like, even though they have that white fur, they're very distinguished. I always thought. <laughs> they have really, really striking eyes too. I feel like all lemurs have eyes that just like, when they look at you, they feel like they're so fixated on you. They are really staring directly into your soul. Yeah. So they, they had this kind of like bluish, like in real life, like almost like bluish greenish, really just beautiful beautiful, gorgeous eyes. How cute are the babies? I don't feel like I've seen a baby. How cute are they? Oh, they're pretty cute. And it was, it was so funny <laughs> during um, the, I guess, birthing season. Like oftentimes I wouldn't see the baby for quite a while because they would cling on to the belly of the the mother. Um, and then all of a sudden I'd just like be looking with my binoculars and you'd see this little like black circle and I'd take a peek and it was the, it was the the baby's face um but yeah they're I mean imagine imagine the the shifaka but like really small and cute with a little like <laughs> a little like wiry tail like kind of bouncing around oh man it's so perfect they have kind of this bright contrast right between like this white and then the black and and dark maroon markings did that help you like find them <laughs> in the jungle I imagine it would Oh, yeah. So that was like a big relief because I think I mentioned earlier, I did my master's work in Belize um, where I studied the howler monkeys. So the howler monkeys were totally black. So it was really, really hard to find them in the top of the trees because they looked like they would just blend right in. Like there'd be times that we knew they were there and you just couldn't see them because they just like looked like this dark spot. So I was really relieved to get to, to Madagascar where I, I would find the lemurs. And yeah, it's almost like birders have like the eye for birding so once you kind of pick up that visual signal it became really easy to find them if they were there and oftentimes I would get there really early in the morning so they'd still be sleeping and they'd be in this big clump that I used to call like a lemur ball and so that, that was a lot of fun to to find them yeah does it get hot for them all being clumped up together like what is what is the purpose of the lemur ball well, usually they would do that when it was cooler. So it wasn't always hot, especially in the mornings, um, in the dry season, it would actually be pretty cool. And, you know, I lived there in a tent and I would get cold at night because we didn't have central heating or anything like that. So they, they would, I think they would hunker down together in that lemur ball to stay warm. <laughs> they got a cuddle puddle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I'm in love. I love this this animal very much. Before we get wrapped up, since the week that this episode is going to be going up, it will be coming up on World Lemur Conservation Day. So can you tell tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the World Lemur Festival was, I, I think it started in uh, 2014. So it's still relatively new. 
But the idea behind it is to really raise awareness about lemurs, because what a lot of people don't know um, is that lemurs are, A, as we talked about, only found in Madagascar, nowhere else in the world, but they're also threatened with extinction. So a recent uh, report came out actually just this summer that said that lemurs are the most endangered group of animals in the entire world. Um, 98% of all of those 111 different species are threatened with extinction, and the cockerel shifaka is actually critically endangered. So a third of all the lemur species that exist are critically endangered, and unfortunately, cockerel shifaka is one of them. And so that's, like I mentioned before, because of, you know, largely habitat loss, um, but also hunting and the pet trade. So those are the three big threats. So the idea behind the festival, there's events taking place all over the world. People can celebrate um, in many different ways. But the idea is to really raise awareness about these really special animals who are unfortunately facing, you know, a lot of uh, extinction threats as well. So I got I got in touch with you through the Lemur Conservation Network. What kind of actions can people take to help? Like what can people do to make things better? So, I mean, it's tough because we're here and that's in Madagascar. So a lot of people wonder you know, what should I do? I think first and foremost, educate yourself. So learn more. And obviously, if you're listening to this, then you're interested. So that's great. Um, so learn more about about the lemurs, about what they do, um, about why they're threatened. I'm also a member of a nonprofit called Planet Madagascar. Um, and so we work to save lemurs and other wildlife in Madagascar, but also to help people in Madagascar. So what we do is called uh, community conservation. And so we work directly with the people there. Um, a lot of the people in Madagascar, unfortunately, suffer from immense poverty. Um, you know, a lot of people are living on, on less than $2 a day. And a lot of them also don't know that the wildlife found in Madagascar is special and unique and only found there. So we, uh, with my partner, Travis Steffens, he started this conservation nonprofit where we work directly with local communities in Madagascar to help people and lemurs. So we have a number of different projects. One is a fire management program where we have hired uh, local community members to patrol areas near the forest for fire and to note when that's happening, why it's happening, and uh, also to, to look for lemurs because fire is one of the biggest threats in, in the forests where we work as well. We also do a forest re regeneration project where we're actually planting trees. So that's great because with habitat loss being one of the biggest threats to lemurs in Madagascar, you know, what they really need most is more forest and forest being connected. So we're working to, um, we have a, a local women's cooperative working in one of our communities to grow plants that are then going to be transported to connect some of the the bigger fragments in the forest. Oh, I'm I'm so glad to hear that y'all are doing such good work. So I, I would encourage anybody listening who feels inspired to look y'all up. Can you give me that name one more time? Yeah, so it's easy to remember. So we're Planet Madagascar. And the reason why we came up with that name is because uh, Madagascar, we always say, is like a world in an island because there's so much unique biodiversity there. So planetmadagascar.org. And where can people keep up with you? And like, are you working on any other projects right now that you want people to know about? 
Like, how do you uh, want people to follow up with you? So, yeah, so I get to work um, on the side as a board member of Planet Madagascar, so you can find me through that. But I'm also a writer. So I mentioned I started out as an English major when I started my academic journey. Um, So I've kind of come back to that, and I write about Madagascar. So I recently published a book called Chasing Lemurs, My Journey into the Heart of Madagascar. So people can find me on my website, kariannmcgugan.com, and it talks a little bit about the book there. There's a book trailer if you're interested uh, to know more about what it's about. But uh, yeah, that's another another kind of avenue that, I, that I'm passionate about. And, and that's another way that people can educate themselves and learn about Madagascar, because the book is about um, the very first time that I went to Madagascar, which was when I was 25 years old. And that trip sort of didn't go as planned. There was a lot of misadventure along the way. And even though it didn't go as planned, though, uh, Madagascar sort of stuck with me. And so it's also a love letter to this country, this beautiful country with amazing wildlife and wonderful people. I feel like I especially would, that would resonate with me because I am also 25 and would probably also be the type of person where things would not go as planned. So there's a lot of, uh, actually, that trip ended in an emergency rescue mission. So that's oh, sort of no. like the... That's the through line of the story. So we, uh, you know, yeah, I went was going to set up a, a preliminary field site uh, where I was going to go back for my longer PhD research, which was really, really remote. There was a lot of really hardships along the way to get there. And then we finally got there and my field assistant got malaria. And so we actually had to evacuate unexpectedly. So that's the story. But, you know, within that, it's also about the lemurs and the people and what I learned, you know, becoming a field primate researcher as I was going through um, that journey in Madagascar. Oh, awesome. That's a good resource for people who who might feel inspired to follow in your footsteps in primate research. Yeah, exactly. Well, Carrie-Anne, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. I have fallen in love with the Shafaka. It already had a nice place in my heart. Uh, It was already in a special place for me, but I'm so glad to have more context for that. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Of course. All right. We will talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. 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 